All right, let's, uh, let's begin. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for permitting us to come together to share our thoughts and our concerns and to listen to what you have to say to us uh, through Holy Scripture. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts and our ears, our spiritual ears, that is, um, so that we really understand uh, not only what Scripture is telling us, but how it applies to us today and how we can see some of the things that we are learning in this course that are repeating uh, itself in the modern way. So history truly does repeat itself in many ways. Help us then to guard against the pressures of the day against our faith. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today, we want to really get into not only the book of the prophet Daniel, but uh, all of the political problems that precipitated this book. As we said last week, the first six, chap- first six chapters of the book of Daniel probably were written long before that. You remember the people of the culture of that time enjoyed stories, whether they were made up or were real, uh, makes no difference. They enjoyed telling stories. We've all heard about, you know, the uh, stories of the Arabian Nights, the thousand and one stories of as often referred to. But storytelling in this culture was uh, a form of art as well as entertainment and information because they didn't have, you know, radio, television, and all the little iPods and that kind of stuff. Um, in fact, when uh, I was born, <laughs> we barely even had radio, let alone anything else. Uh And so, you know, you can identify in some ways what life would be like without all of the entertainment distractions that we have today. So storytelling was very important. And these six chapters, for six chapters, were probably written long before. But because they were popular, they were then rewritten for this book to disguise what the author was really trying to say. And what he was really trying to say was, hang in there, folks. It's going to get better because God is with us and behind us. All right? Uh, That is the overall message. Uh, Hang in there because we, you are not alone. God is truly with us. And I think that if you read the uh, paper that I gave you last week on Antiochus uh, IV, you will see how that fits in. Here, for the benefit of all of you and those who didn't read and do the homework, uh, Antiochus IV was a Greek, and he wasn't really a king, He kind of took upon himself that title. In fact, he even glorified himself by adding Epiphanes before, which means 
uh, the manifestation of God, or in other words, uh, the likeness of God or God himself, all right, which of course was far anything from the truth. But I have to go back and give you some of the background on the history uh, for kind of a review purposes. When Alexander, uh, well, his father, Philip the Great, conquered most of the Mideast, Southern Europe, and North Africa, the Greek Empire, back in the early part of the 4th century B.C., all right? Uh, Philip was killed very uh, early in life, and his son Alexander took over. Alexander was a, a great general, a great uh, person as far as politics and warfare was concerned. Uh, but he was also uh, a person who enjoyed life in the very uh, luxury of Greece at the time. And so he felt that because... Greece was probably the um, well, the, the the original source, you might say, of uh, philosophy, of writing, um, of education, of building, of uh, all kinds of the arts and sciences. Uh, that it was forced upon virtually everybody in the empire. All right now. After Alexander died at the age of 30 uh, or 33, there's a little bit of conflict there, uh, his empire, because it was so uh, far-flung, so strewn out over so much of the world, that it was actually, um, it actually broke up, you might say, into ten different regions five in North Africa and five through uh, Southern Europe and Asia. All right. And that is where uh, we get the Antiochus dynasty. Uh, the Ptolemies ruled the five regions in North Africa, and the Antiochus dynasty uh, ruled most of the rest of it through Southern Europe and um, Asia. All right, not as far as China, but through India and that area, okay. <clears throat> but gradually, each of these uh, ten regions were looked upon as almost separate empires. And it wasn't until uh, the second century that you really had a despot uh, who was the great-grandson of the original Antiochus, who took upon himself to really force the Greek culture on all of the occupants of the region that he controlled, which was uh, Palestine, uh, Rome, uh, to some degree, and most of Greece. All right. Uh, And that is where we get the word Hellenism, okay, or Hellenistic culture, all right. It was not necessarily named after Helen of Troy. It was the other way around. Helen of Troy came out of the whole idea of Hellenistic culture. But nevertheless, it was the Greek culture that is was forced upon all of the conquered area, and including Palestine. 
the Greek culture was one that enjoyed uh, virtually uh, unlimited freedom of virtually everything. Uh, if it was good, enjoy it and foster it. Okay, but it went against the teachings of the Jewish people, and those people around Jerusalem and uh, the whole area of Judah, province of Judah, were very much opposed to the edicts of Antiochus the Fourth, all right, because he was taking away from them uh, their rights as Jewish citizens, okay, which had been given to them uh, by the Persian kings prior to the Greeks coming in. The temple in itself, now this temple would be Solomon's temple that had been rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity uh, ended back in the end of the uh, 6th century BC. Yeah, 6th century BC. All right. This is Solomon's temple. The temple was desecrated and this actually started uh, the Jewish wars that is detailed in First and Second Maccabees of the Old Testament. If you really want to know the greater part of uh, those wars, read First and Second Maccabees. All right. But getting back to the Book of Daniel, how this fits in here, the writer or writers, we think that there were more than one. We don't know for sure. Uh, the writers, though, wanted the people to hang in and know that God was with them regardless of what this uh, guy was trying to force upon them and to stick to what they believed in. Uh, but he had to disguise what he was saying in these stories. So what he did was to put back the story or time frame back into the 6th century B.C., Babylon had become a dirty word, you might say, uh, to the Jewish people because it reminded them of the slavery that they endured um, in the 6th century. Uh, why they didn't call it something about, you know, about Cairo or um, any of the cities in Egypt, I don't know, because it was the same kind of thing, you might say. But nevertheless, they used Babylon as a uh, synonym, you might say, for everything that was evil. The same thing is done in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Babylon, again, is referred to as uh, a whore that is prostituting uh, the nation of Christians. All right? Uh, <coughs> in the first century A.D. But let's stick to Daniel here. So these stories here, again, are nice little stories. Each chapter, one through six, sort of is an independent story. We went through it briefly last week. I'll go through it again today because of uh, some new people being here and because review is always helpful. Uh, but I wanted to give
give you an idea of how things worked out and how they came about. Because if you don't understand the background, these stories just kind of look like fables. All right? They don't have a great deal of meaning. But in the first chapter, the first chapter really is uh, very simple, and it has to do with uh, the food that Jewish people, as you know, um, are very concerned about not only what they eat, but how it's prepared. And they are not allowed to eat or permitted to eat uh, certain forms of meat, uh, particularly pork. Uh, and that is one of the objections here in this story. So if we get into chapter 1, let's go through it and kind of review how this measures up. Now, I want to uh, show you something that I would like you to write down. I would like you to write down um, on the pamphlet that you got, or the, the handout you got today. Because each of the first six chapters have the same structure. Okay? You'll find that there is a crisis. A crisis in some way develops, right? And then there is uh, a resolve to remain faithful. Okay. Then there is a trial or a test. Then there is some kind of a resolution. Not revolution, but resolution. Okay. And then there is a praise of God. Now, the reason I'd like you to write this down is because it helps you to better understand how this is all put together and get the full meaning out of it. So as we go through, let's identify each one of, okay, page 102. Here they are, late again. Says the food test. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now see, what we're doing here is this is written in the second century BC. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon back in the sixth century, 400 years before. All right? And the reason again is that because the writer wanted to protect himself he is writing this as if it is sort of a fable to the people. But the people at that time truly understood what was being said here. Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and laid siege to Jerusalem. That happened in 597, the uh, first time, and he didn't succeed. He came back uh, ten years later in 587 B.C. and sieged and sacked Jerusalem and took off all of those people who could do the Babylonians some good, all right? 
He didn't take the children. He didn't take uh, elderly people or anyone that was uh, considered infirm or in, an invalid uh, or had diseases of any kind. He was very selective in who he carted off to Babylon. All right, but that's not important to this particular story. All right. The Lord handed over to him Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and some of the vessels of the temple of God. Now, the vessels, uh, if you read the first and second Maccabees, that was very important. These were the ceremonial vessels that were made of gold uh, and used solely in uh, liturgies within the Jewish temple. Even today, the Jewish people are very uh, particular on certain pots and pans and dishes, uh, particularly around uh, Passover time. Okay, uh, and many Orthodox Jews will have certain sets of uh, dishes and pans and so forth uh, set aside solely for those particular meals that. Uh, they share in conjunction with what they call the High Holy Days. Uh, that's Passover, and which is always in March or April, and the, and the Day of Atonement, uh, which is in generally in September. The Lord handed over to him Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and some of the vessels of the temple, which he carried off to the land of Shinar. Shinar was the original name of Babylon, and placed in the temple uh, there in Shinar, or Babylon, the treasury of his god. The king told Ashpenaz, his chief chamberlain, now the king, this is, we're talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, to bring in some of the Israelites of royal blood and of the nobility, young men without any defect handsome, intelligent, and wise, quick to learn and prudent in judgment, which was always uh, a way of measuring uh, the elite of the Jewish faith. All right? They had to be good-looking, they had to be intelligent, uh, they had to be prudent, etc., etc. Okay. Um, that was always a very uh, mark of God's favor to them. Anybody that was an invalid or ill or so forth and so on uh, was always indicated as a great sinner. Uh, these were brought in to take their place in the king's palace, and they were uh, to be taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another name for Babylonians or, or Mesopotamians. Uh, you'll have those three names. They're not... Uh, identical in meaning, but close enough. All right. After three years training, they were to enter the king's service. The king allotted them a daily portion of food and wine from the royal table. Among these were men of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief chamberlain changed their names, uh, Daniel to Belshazzar, Hananiah to Shadrach, uh, Mishael to Meshach and Azariah to Ab, uh, Abednego. You know, you all know that song. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You know. <laughs> now, if I was karma, I, you know, she'd get up here and sing the whole song. 
and dance, yes. Okay. All right. But Daniel was resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or wine. So he begged, all right, here we are setting up the crisis, okay? These men now are brought in for service, but they were indentured servants, so that part is not the problem. The problem is that because they were entering a particular portion of the service of this king, they were to eat from his table and drink the wine from, you know, his kitchen and so forth and so on. So that becomes a crisis to these guys. They could not eat because the food that was being served was forbidden food to the Jewish people. And so now we have a crisis developing. Daniel was resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or wine. So he begged the chief chamberlain to spare him this defilement. And the chamberlain says, though God had given Daniel the favor and sympathy of the chief chamberlain, he nevertheless said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king. It is he who allotted your food and drink. If he sees that you look wretched by comparison with the other young men of your age, you will endanger my life with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief chamberlain had put in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for ten days. Give us vegetables and eat uh, to eat and water to drink. See, they were the first vegetarians. Okay. <clears throat> then see how we look in comparison with the other young men who eat from the uh, royal table and treat servants according to what you see. He acceded to this request and tested them for ten days. After ten days, they looked healthier and better fed than any of the men who ate from the royal table. So, you have a resolve. Okay? First of all, you have a resolve to remain faithful because he refused to eat from the king's table. And, you know, that's a trial. And now we get down here to a form of uh, resolving. To these four men, God gave knowledge and proficiency in all literature, science, and to Daniel, to the understanding of all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, that is the three years of training, the king had specified for their preparation. The chief chamberlain brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And when the king spoke with them all, none was found to equal Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In any question of wisdom or prudence which the king put to them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. And they lived happily. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay. So it's a very simple story. But as I said before, these people enjoyed stories. You know, they reveled in this. And there was probably a lot of embellishment and that kind of thing. We don't have all of that. 
But as the stories are repeated, you can understand how these people discussed the, the topics and the crises and how it was a test of God's faith and the resolution, how God really helped. Uh, and then, of course, they all praised God at the end. So hang in there, fellas. That's the whole message. So you see, now we can take this kind of structure here and go through each one of the stories, but they get a little more complex each time. All right. So how many of you did read the paper on on Antiochus IV? Did you find it helpful in understanding? Well, yeah, some of the names are a little difficult, but uh, at least you get the general idea of what is all behind this, because there is real, true history behind this book. But now, let's digress for a moment and take your handout for today and look on the second page. In the middle of the column on the left, by the way, this is an excerpt from last week's bulletin right here in our parish church. All right. And this is an article written by our pastor. And it really shows how history is repeating itself by what is being forced upon us. All right. If we go down to that section where the arrow is, and <clears throat> it is just been revealed that on January the 20th, the Department of Health and Human Services put into place mandatory birth control and sterilization requirements for all providing insurance. It took away the religious exemption, instead giving religious groups an extra year to comply in providing birth control and abortions for their employees or to drop insurance provisions. In other words, if Catholic hospitals do not offer uh, birth control, abortion, and sterilization services, uh, they will use the benefit that they now have of accepting government sponsored insurance. And of course, you know that that will spread to uh, Blue Cross and Kaiser and all of the others pretty darn soon as well. All right. But most of those uh, other service providers already permit uh, those kinds of services. All right. But here we have a case where something is being forced upon us and if we don't accept it, uh, we can be denied service in certain hospitals. Okay. And of course, if Catholic hospitals persist in what they believe in, eventually uh, they could go broke because they will lose a number of patients who have government-sponsored insurance. 
and so forth. And you can see the ramifications that can stem from that. It says at the same time, the Obama uh, administration has taken away the right of conscious uh, objection for healthcare workers who still no longer have the right, who will no longer have the right to opt out of procedures they find uh, morally objectionable. In other words, Catholics who work in hospitals that do provide these services up till now and for the near foreseeable future can uh, say that they cannot and will not uh, take part in some of these uh, procedures that are forbidden by the church. Uh, but after whatever time this time frame this is in, uh, they will no longer have that right. And so, therefore, they could lose their jobs. You see, it's the same kind of thing as happened way back here. What we're reading in this book seems very simple and you know, kind of simplistic, and, and it was. But nevertheless, as we get on in here, you'll see far greater, far greater problems. All right. So what I'm trying to do here is to get you to see that history is repeating itself. And we as Catholics must take action to protect our beliefs. And how do we do that? The most convenient way is through who we vote for. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but you have to make your own mind up and understand who you are voting for and what they stand for. Let's go on. The King's Dream. Now, let's see if you can start uh, recognizing these patric- uh, this particular criteria here. The King's Dream. Now, again, this is a, a, a chapter where the story is self-contained. It has its own uh, structure, but it follows this pattern. In the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream which left his spirit so uh, no rest and robbed him of sleep. And so he ordered that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans be... Chaldeans were often thought to be uh, astrologers, all right? People who um, felt that the stars and planets and so forth uh, gave them messages. He summoned to interpret the dream. When they came and presented themselves to the king, he said to them, I had a, I had a dream. I had a dream. Which will allow my spirit no rest until I know what it means. The Chaldeans answered the king in Aramaic, and that is because this book is written in three different languages, all right? It starts out in Hebrew, then it switches to Aramaic, and back and forth a few times in chapters 12 and 13 are written in Greek, and certain parts of chapter 3 is written in Greek as well. 
And those parts were never accepted by the Hebrew people. And at the time of the Reformation uh, in the 16th century, Martin Luther, when he uh, broke away from the Catholic Church, uh, also um, he and his followers also adopted the Protestant, uh, no, I shouldn't say that, the Greek version, shouldn't say that either. Uh, sorry. Uh, he adopted the original Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Okay. And the Hebrew version of the Old Testament did not recognize anything that was written in Greek. And therefore, the Hebrew version only accepts chapters 1 through 11 and excludes some of some small portions of that. They do not accept the first and second Maccabees wisdom um, and a few others. All right, there's six books that were written in Greek and added to the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint version, which was also written about the same time as the book of Daniel in the second century. Okay. Got that one out. All right, so that's why that word Aramaic is there. All right. The king, the Chaldeans answered the king in, in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give its meaning. In other words, the king has this dream. He's upset about it. He wants to know its meaning, etc. And he calls in all of these magicians and so forth, the wonder workers, etc. And he says to them, I want you to tell me what my dream was and then what it means. Well, of course, somebody from the outside cannot say what a dream of another person was if they weren't involved in it. All right. So that's part of the test. Okay. The king of uh, the Chaldeans answered the king, O king, live forever. Tell the servants, tell your servants the dream and then we will give its meaning. The king answered the Chaldeans, and this is what I have decided. Unless you tell me the dream and its meaning, you shall be cut to pieces and your house destroyed. All right. That's a little bit of a test, isn't it? <laughs> but if you tell me the dream and its meaning, you shall, shall receive from me gifts and presence and great honors. Now, tell me the dream and its meaning. Again they answered, O oh, king, let, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its meaning. But the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time since you know what I have decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there can be but one decree for you. You have framed a false and deceitful interpretation to present me uh, with till the crisis is past. 
Tell me the dream, therefore, that I may be sure that you can also give its correct interpretation. Well, you see, there's this bargaining back and forth. Obviously, the sorcerers and so forth can't tell a dream because they weren't involved. The Chaldeans answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what you ask. O king, never has any king, however great and mighty, asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldeans. What you demand, O king, is too difficult. There is no one who can tell it to the kings except the gods who did not, who do not dwell among men. At this the king became violently angry and ordered all the wise men of Babylon to be put to death. When the decree was issued that the wise men should be slain, Daniel and his champions, uh, his companions really, uh, were also sought out. Oh, my savior, you know. Then Daniel prudently took counsel with Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had set out to kill the wise men of Babylon. O officer of the king, he asked, what is the reason for this harsh order from the king? When Ariok told him, Daniel went and asked for time from the king that he might give him the interpretation. Daniel went home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that they might implore the mercy of the God of heaven in regard to this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night vision, I'm sorry, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and he blessed the God of heaven. Blessed be the name of God forever, for wisdom and power are his. He causes the changes of the times and the seasons and makes kings and unmakes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who understand. He reveals deep and hidden things and knows what is in the darkness, for the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have shown me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the king's dream. Now, this is a prayer that is often used in Jewish liturgies. There are several prayers within this book that we Catholics also use, particularly in the Liturgy of the Hours, and I'll point them out as we go along, particularly beginning in chapter 3. So, and you can see so far now what what the story is, okay? The king has a dream. He's trying to get people to interpret it because it's quite disturbing. Uh, no one can do that except Daniel. Daniel is praying for the Lord's uh, uh, protection and enlightenment and so forth, and now he's ready to uh, face the king, all right? So Daniel went to Ariok, whom he had... <coughs> whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, 
Do not put these wise men of Babylon to death. Bring me before the king, and I will tell him the interpretation of the dream. Hedeah quickly brought Daniel to the king and said, I have found the man among the Judean captives who can give the interpretation to the king. The king asked Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Can you tell me the dream that I had and its meaning? In the king's presence, Daniel made this reply. The mystery about which the king has inquired, the wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers, could not explain to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what is to happen in days to come. And this was the dream you saw as you lay in bed. To you in your... In your bed there came thoughts about what should happen in the future. And he who reveals mysteries showed you what is to be. To me also this mystery has been revealed. Not that I am wiser than any other living person, but in order that its meaning may be made known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts in your own mind. In the vision, O king, you saw a statue, very large and exceedingly bright, terrifying in appearance as it stood before you. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its crest and arms were silver, its belly and thighs bronze, the legs iron, its feet partly iron and partly tile, or in some books that is uh, written as clay, okay? Clay, of course, is the basis for tile. While you looked at the statue, a stone which has was hewn from a mountain without a hand being put to it, struck its iron and feet, tile feet, breaking them to pieces. The iron, the tile, the bronze, the silver, and gold, all crumbled at once, fine as the chaff on the threshing floor in summer. And the wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, the interpretation we shall also give in the king's presence. Let me stop there. You see what's happening here. In the story, the writer is trying to present to the people that are reading this story, the Hebrew people that are reading this story, is that even though this king is mighty and powerful, um, now we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar back in the 6th century, all right? Like him, the present king over Judah, Antiochus IV, is going to suffer the same fate. What happened now is that this statue, the head of gold, represents Babylon. All right? The shoulders and neck and so forth uh, are silver, represent 
represents the Persian Empire. The body of iron represents the Greek Empire. Okay? So each of these materials represent a declining empire that stem from the Babylons, Babylonians themselves. And the legs of, was it legs of iron, yeah, legs of iron and tile are the Seleucid kings that took over after Alexander died. The ten kings, you know, ten toes in the statue represent the ten different regions within the diminishing Greek Empire. And they, you know, see, iron and clay do not mix. And that's why they were very fragile. Now, what is the stone that smashed the... There's a... Uh, the stone that smashes the statue is Judaism. If the people hang together, all right, and they, the reason you can determine that, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, all right. Zion, or Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, has always been looked upon as a great mountain. In fact, one of the um, Psalms, that's the whole context of the psalm, uh, how it became the greatest of all mountains. Well, of course, it isn't. It's just a big plateau, you might say. Uh, nevertheless, it became the source of the diminishment and the, the final uh, phase of Antiochus IV. And that actually happened uh, by the Maccabees. The Maccabees defeated Antiochus IV and he was killed uh, by the forces of Judaism. Okay. And so what the author is trying to say is, hang in there, fellas, girls and boys, whatever, uh, because eventually this king, Antiochus IV, will follow the same fate as the king of Babylon. That's what he's really presenting in this story. So you can see when the people kind of sat around and worried about what was going on, this story would then hopefully uh, give them some idea of, of hope. Okay, let us go on because there's a little bit more. It says, this was the dream, the interpretation we shall also give in the king's presence. You, O king, are the king of kings. <clears throat> to you, the God of heaven has given dominion and strength, power and glory. Men, wild beasts and birds of the air, wherever they may dwell, he has handed over to you making you ruler over all. You are the head of gold. Okay. Babylon 
which has the is represented by the king, is the head of gold. Another kingdom shall take your place, inferior to yours, and then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. Therefore shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. It shall break in pieces and subdue all of these others. And that's, of course, after Alexander the Great died, his empire broke up into ten pieces. Okay. These as iron breaks in pieces and crushes everything else. The feet and toes you saw, partly uh, potter's tile and partly iron, mean that it shall be a divided kingdom, but yet have some of the hardness of iron. As you saw, the iron mixed with clay tile and the toes partly iron and partly tile, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And that's exactly what happened. The iron mixed with clay means that they shall seal their alliances by intermarriage, but they shall not stay united any more than the iron mixes with clay. In the lifetime of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed or delivered up to another people. Rather, it shall break into pieces all of these kingdoms and put an end to them, and it shall stand forever. Well, Judaism, as you know, did break up in many ways, uh, but it is still around very strong. This is the meaning of the stone you saw hewn from the mountain without a hand being put to it, which broke in pieces the tile, iron, bronze, silver, and gold. The great God has revealed to the king what shall be in the future. And this is exactly what you dreamed, and its meaning is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell down and worshipped Daniel and ordered sacrifice and incense offered to him. To Daniel the king said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the the revealer of mysteries. And that is why you were able to reveal this mystery. He advanced Daniel to a high post, gave him many generous presents, and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon. And they lived happily. No, that's not And chief uh, prefect over the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators of the provinces of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained in the king's court. Now, this story mirrors very closely the real story of Joseph, uh, the not Saint Joseph, uh, but Joseph in the book of Genesis, the second youngest son of Jacob, uh, who was sold by his brothers, you might remember in the story. Uh, he was sold by his brothers to uh, Egyptian uh, traders, and uh, lay and he. So Joseph was taken off as a uh, a slave, you might say, to uh, the Egyptians. But when he got there, because of his education and his uh, appearance, etc., etc., 
uh, he became a favorite of the king and put in charge. So it's the same kind of story. All right. Uh, that, of course, was a real story. This, again, is just a story. All right. But you can see the connection. If you keep in mind the time frame, it makes a lot more sense than just a, a story to, uh, or a fable. Okay. But the people in Judah during the second century who looked upon uh, the King Antiochus IV as a real despot uh, and fearing him would discuss this particular story and say, aha, uh-huh, he's going to get his day uh, sooner or later. And it did turn out that way. So, again, hang in there. And we today have to do the same kind of thing. Okay. But we have to take action. We can't just say back, sit back and say, oh, what can I do? I'm only one person. You know, one person can do a great deal if they band together. All right. Okay. Yes, Jerry. Good point. All right. The question is, what can we take from this story that applies to us today, and what can we do about it? All right. <clears throat> we cannot let people force upon us beliefs or customs uh, that go against our faith and go against the teachings of the church and of God. Okay. Uh, and right now, as we just read here in that uh, attachment to your handout today, uh, the current administration is forcing upon the Catholic Church and other uh, religious uh, medical facilities uh, the need to offer abortion services, uh, sterilization um, and contraceptives, etc., or they lose their insurance. Now, what we can do is to vote against that or call on our representatives and our senators to vote against that because we will then vote against them if they don't. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to be after church in February. Seventeenth and eighteenth is petitions. Yeah, petitions for Bishop Soto. Good. Good. Well, and that was what the walk last. Well, yeah, that's another one. That's another thing that's being forced upon us is that uh, youngsters can have all kinds of uh, 
sterilization, abortion, uh, that kind of thing, without having their parents' approval. So what we're doing, their government is doing, is taking away the parents' right of approving what uh, their children are doing. So you can see the kinds of things that are creeping in little by little when the government interferes and overtakes the parents' right or uh, sets aside the religious beliefs that we all have. Yes? Um, I can't remember the representative's name, but in Florida, he has already brought uh, a bill or whatever they call it at this level trying to fight what has happened regarding religious beliefs and trying to reverse it. So there is something already in the legislation happening that we can call about and say, you better hold this. Right. And it's from the representative of Florida. Mm-hmm. We'll get the information and bring it in. We'll just send it, send it out next week. All right. Yes, ma'am. There is already a practice of contraception and pill taking by Catholic American people by the billions that are already practicing of birth control. So abortion is one of them. How about families that have two children or have no children or one child? We've been practicing that for quite some years. Well, that is, you know, an individual thing that they are doing solely on their own. They know it's wrong, uh, and yet they do it anyways, thinking that they have uh, rights. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, you're you're right. The the church, unfortunately, many people within the church separate the church from their beliefs, and they'll separate even their beliefs from God. And of course, the church and God are all one. God established the church for our benefit, and we cannot divorce ourselves. Or, or split the two. We went through this last night in the last uh, evening class. That it's important that we realize that when we go against the teachings of the church, we are actually going against God himself. Uh, but a lot of people just don't seem to care. And it's unfortunate, but they will uh, suffer the consequences at some date in time. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Lisa? Well, remember, God in Jesus Christ has said, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So, grace is being poured out on all of us. We have to take advantage of it and use it. All right. Use the grace, the influence 
that God is giving to each one of us uh, to stem the tide of the evil that is forced upon us. And it is not just uh, medical services. Uh, look at what the uh, Hollywood people are forcing upon us. Some of the, the stuff you see on television is disgusting. And it's not even worth listening to. I get bombarded, and I'm sure all of you do, uh, with advertisements from one media company after another uh, trying to uh, take advantage of uh, more television. Do, you know, all kinds of uh, gimmicks to watch more television. Well, right now, if you surf the net, I can't find anything that's really worthwhile except Jeopardy. <laughs> I like that because it's clean, uh, it's only a half hour, and it's educational, okay? Uh, it's a little repetitive, but nevertheless, at least it's clean and somewhat entertaining. Uh, even the news is getting uh, terrible. Uh, and some of these uh, situation uh, comedies, um, so-called, uh, are not funny because they're kind of raunchy in many ways. Um, so we have to bear down and let people know that we will not partake of that kind of thing. Just to bring us down to the practical political side, which I'm sure you don't want to do, but uh, there are, aren't there, in this country, 60 million Catholics. And uh, didn't 54% of the voters vote Catholic vote for Obama? So it seems to me that you'll get a pretty good impression of where Catholics are in relationship to the next political vote. Well, I think I think that yes, Jerry just mentioned that a good portion of a good percentage of Catholics voted for uh, the current administration, but I, we really didn't know what he was all about. We didn't know, and he's turned out to be a lot different than what we had expected. I think race was not a problem at that time. Uh, there was all kinds of other issues, but uh, I don't think that the current administration showed their true face. face. Uh, and we've learned a great deal more about them since then. Uh, anyways, yes? I hope not. I hope not, yes. I hope not, yeah. Okay. Yes, Jose? Yes. Uh, it says here when, when they were asked to give not only the meaning of the dream, but the dream itself, they said, no one who can tell it to the king except the gods who do not dwell among men. What is your business? Do they do believe that the Greek gods dwell among men? Well, God dwells among us, does no, he not? Our God. Our God does. Precisely no. when they say, except the gods who do not dwell among well, men. Well, no, see, they... Do not dwell. Yeah. Therefore, there are gods who dwell. No. No. 
Well, no, they, he's, he's saying he recognizes that gods don't dwell among men. All right? And therefore, there's no way uh, for the average person to interpret a dream that he wasn't part of. Now, our God does dwell among us. In fact, lives within us when we are in state of grace. And therefore, we must uh, turn to him for guidance. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. Our role in God's plan of salvation is not something that we take upon ourselves uh, and by ourselves or can execute solely by ourselves. We must do everything in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. And that's one thing that uh, people who make uh, rash judgments or important decisions uh, have not done. And that's why we're in the mess that we are in. So, can you see now how this little structure here fits the two stories that we've already talked about? Okay. What I'd like you to do when you're reading chapter 3, review chapter 1 and 2, but do chapter 3 for your uh, reading assignment for next week and see how this particular structure shows up. And we'll talk about that next week. So we, we're right now in today's world in crisis time. I think we're facing a crisis, yes. Well, it's, you see, in everyday life, you have this constantly moving. Yes. You have it constantly moving. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Yes. I'm sorry? Yes. Our respect for life is asking for help. Um, participate in signing up, gathering, signing up in the church. And Father Stephen really needs a lot of help with people who can actually man the table for signatures. So if they want to help, they could get Stephen Crowley's, Gloria Crowley's um, email address and they could sign up to help out. Okay, very good. Fiona is telling us that there is help needed to man uh, signature tables and Gloria and Stephen Cooley are involved with that and they need a lot of help. Okay, So that's one thing that you can do. Remember, any ladies I'm going to send you down the hall to the principal. <laughs> No talking in class. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
That's just because you were talking about <laughs> holy things that isn't. Yeah. See, you can always you can always tell by the publisher. This is a Protestant version. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was saying. Tyndale. Yeah. Tyndale. No, that's not. Don't worry about yeah, it. That's there's nothing yeah. wrong. It's just that there is some, and you probably don't have Maccabees and so well, forth in there. Sure, don't don't worry about it. The question just just asked was about the difference between the Catholic Study Bible and the Bible that this lady has back here, uh, that is published by Tyndale House which is a, a Protestant version. If you have, let me put it this way, once, uh, well, several times, people have asked me, what's a good Bible? You know? And if you stop and think about it, all Bibles are good. Some, though, are a little better than others because of their uh, translation, their re- revision, etc. cetera. Uh, but if you're going to buy a, a Bible, don't rush out and get one, but if you're going to buy one, I would recommend the New American Study Bible. Okay, New American Catholic Study Bible. Because it has a lot of extras in it. Alright. I don't, I don't, I have one at home, but I don't have one here. Um, yeah. Now this is one version. It comes in, uh, large print. It comes in with a fancy binder. It comes in different uh, covers, etc. But the New American Study Bible is what I really recommend because this is what uh, the liturgies within our Mass and other liturgies uh, use. Okay. Uh, also, it has a lot of extras, as I said. History, background, uh, cross-references, footnotes. Lisa? Yes? Yes, yes, yeah. It does have one or two Maccabees in it, as well as the others. All right. Can I plug one thing in? Yeah. Easter's Catholic Bookstore. Go there for your purchase. Don't buy it online. Give them their business. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's another commercial here. (laughs) All right. Any other questions? Well, I hope you got something out of this uh, class today. And for those who came late, they can stay a little while longer. <laughs> All right. Yes. Three times. Yes. All right. Okay. Uh, no other questions. Let's end with a let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts, and we ask that you give us the courage, the inspiration. To know what we as individuals can do to stem the tide of evil that is facing our nation and us as individuals. Help us to not step out and do uh, crazy things or or things that are beyond our normal uh, capabilities and scope. Unless they are truly something that you want us to do. But more importantly, help us to just see what it is that you want us 
to do and how we are to stem the tide. So we thank you for this time together and we ask encouragement uh, as we proceed with our study of the book of Daniel. We praise you and thank you in all things in Jesus' name. The Father, the Son of the Holy Spirit.